Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. So here we are again, back for another Shabbat and hopefully back for a little bit more insight into the relationship between Israel and the principalities and powers that are out there. And and we're not going to take the time to read this again. I think we've read it before together, and it's John 10, 22 through 38. And if we haven't read it together, please go back and read it. Uh, Remember, this is a we did a little Becky book on this called The Seven Shepherds uh, book, kind of going back to the prophecies of Hanukkah, uh, not just in the book of Haggai, but also from the Torah itself. Most people don't realize the hints that are there, but in that little book, we kind of go through, why would Yeshua have been in the temple at the Feast of Dedication? Why would he have had this particular interaction if he were walking in the temple at at Hanukkah? Well, there's a a reason, the expectation of the seventh shepherd and the eighth prince at that time. And so they're asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the seventh shepherd? Are you the eighth prince? And he starts talking about sheep. And so the the connection was clearly there with the seventh seventh shepherd. Uh, But there's an extra layer to this, not just the prophecies that we covered in Seven Shepherd, Shepherds, but it also goes back to this particular incident with Jacob and the angel who wrestled all night. Because remember, when Yeshua was asked, are you the Messiah or not? Tell us plainly. They were asking, are you the authentic one? Because there's been lots of Messiahs up to this point. There were lots of Messiahs after this point, and many people followed false Messiahs. And they say, tell us, are you authentic or not? And all of a sudden, Yeshua starts giving a sheep speech. I'm like, sheep speech? Why are you talking about sheep, Yeshua? Well, there's so much prophecy about sheep anyway. But there's a tradition behind this wrestling match between the angel and Jacob. And part of it is that initially when the angel appeared to Jacob and he thought he was a human being, he appeared as a shepherd robber a shepherd robber, actually a robber chief. And uh, they say that Jacob had sheep, but so did this angel. This angel had sheep with him too. And so when the angel appears at the stream with his sheep, they say the angel says something to Jacob like, okay, bring across the stream what is mine and I'll bring across what is yours. And they say the angel brought across Jacob's flock in the blink of an eye. In the blink of an eye, he brings Jacob's flock across. Is this authentic? Is this based on truth? Or is this a sorcery? That's the question. Now, if we think of the blink of an eye, that instantly makes us think of how Yeshua talks about eternal life. You know, my sheep know my voice. They will not follow another. I'm going to give them eternal life. Uh, It makes you think of the resurrection in Messiah Yeshua. Also makes you think of the Feast of Trumpets, when we will be transformed in the blink of an eye. Well, Yeshua is the good shepherd. He's the seventh shepherd. He's the eighth prince. He's going to protect the father's sheep so that they can re-enter the Garden of Eden. So that, you know, that heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
can be passed along to the 12 tribes. But there's also imposters, just like we're told in Revelation. There are sorcerers. And what these sorcerers attempt to do is to blur the lines of obedience that are drawn around the Garden of Eden and fire, you know, fiery swords. You you don't get in there in, in, in disobedience. But nevertheless, there's a belief out there. There are imposters out there who are teaching the people of Adonai that it's okay to set your own rules and that you're going to be able to function just fine in the garden. You're going to live this wonderful resurrected life, but you don't have to be, you know, obedient. Yeshua died so that you wouldn't have to be. Somehow Yeshua's grace makes your rebellion invisible. (laughs) But think about it. Are we really going to be resurrected in the blink of an eye and restored to the garden if we're in a state of rebellion against the voice of Elohim that walked in the garden? If we're in a state of rebellion against the living word, do we really think we're going to be resurrected in the blink of an eye at the first resurrection? Or do we think maybe there might be that second resurrection where there's an accounting that has to be given for why we thought we could trample underfoot the blood of Messiah? Because there's a judgment there too. We want to be in the first resurrection. But the thing is, yes, we do need Messiah's righteousness to live there, but we don't use his death as an excuse to keep living rebelliously. And if there are people out there who are telling us it's okay, it's all under grace, you can do anything you want to, but you're you're still saved and you're going to go in the blink of an eye, that's likely to be a work of sorcery. They're blurring the lines. You know, they don't have to pull a rabbit out of the hat to be a sorcerer. Just blurring the lines where you think you're seeing something, but they're actually what they're doing is they're concealing the truth with a lie. You think you're seeing life, but actually they're teaching you how to excuse death in your life. And so Yeshua says, you know, my sheep won't follow another. They can't be led astray. They're not going to be led into immoral, disobedient behavior because they want to be welcomed into the garden. If they transgress, they'll repent because they're following my voice. They know my voice. Nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. My sheep know how to repent because as they're studying and as they're learning the word, as they're learning what pleases the Father, then they will be transformed by that word. They won't be stubbornly, you know, digging in with their heels and saying, hey, I'm not about to change this sin. And, and so often it it really disturbs me if I hear somebody say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm just an unforgiving person. You mess me up one time. I'm never going to forget. I'm like, who gave you permission not to forgive, right? My little secret sin over here. I can get it. No, I don't think you can. If you know it's a sin, I don't see how you can keep getting away with it. It might mean you have to repent of it 20 times until that transformation is fully done. You repent of it 20 times if that's what it takes. That's what Yeshua died for so that we wouldn't give up, so that we would stand, stand on our faith. I might know it's wrong. I fell into it again, but you know what? Tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to repent. Holy Spirit, help me to overcome this. I want to be an overcomer. I don't want to begin excusing my sin just because I don't want to deal with it, or I think I'm entitled to my sin. I might think I'm entitled to be a gossip. No, you're not. You need to practice stopping gossiping. That's the voice of Esau is the sorcerer. He's the red one. He's the red beast. And the beast, if you'll remember, is the messenger of the adversary, the messenger of the serpent in Revelation. 
So kind of going back to the Midrash story about Jacob and the angel, the Midrash tells how Jacob keeps going back and forth across the stream. And, you know, he's going to get these sheep and it's like, well, I thought I got all the sheep. There's more sheep here. And he brings the sheep across and he goes back and there's more sheep there. And he brings, and finally, as, as it gets close to the dawn, they say, Jacob realized this is sorcery. And they say, he's like, sorcery, sorcery, you're a sorcerer for sorcerers are successful at night. And remember in your prophecy glossary, night can represent the exile. So is there a lot of sorcery going on in the night of exile in the house of Israel? You betcha. There's a lot of sorcery. But it, it finally dawns on him, wait a minute, my sheep know my voice. My voice is the only voice they've ever followed. My sheep know my voice. They're not going to follow someone else. If they hear me, they will follow me across this, this stream. My sheep were with me from the beginning. These are Esau's sheep. And so when he realizes this is just an illusion, Yeshua's sheep know his voice. They're not going to follow another but there will be other sheep out there that are Esau's sheep. They belong to the red one. And we'll work ourselves silly sometimes trying to gather up Esau's sheep when their point is just to keep you busy, <laughs> to keep you in the battle when really Jacob could have just stood there all night. He had his sheep with him. He had his sheep. And that's what Yeshua said. My sheep won't follow another. And it finally dawns, there's a pun, on Jacob that these are my sheep. These are Esau's. And so once he discovers the sorcery, the angel knows the dawn is breaking. The day is breaking. He says, I have to go. Why does he have to go at the dawn? Because remember, dawn signals the end of the exile. And the dawn of the day represents, if you're working on your prophecy glossary, the day represents Israel dwelling in obedience with the Father. It's a time of like King Solomon, perfect peace. There's peace between human beings. There's peace between human beings and the Holy One. And so the angel knows his time is short. That should sound familiar. He knows his time is short. He knows he has to go. And then Jacob's like, bless me before you go. But because Esau is the red one, he's called the red one in Judaism. And then you can see that also in the book of Revelation that he's the red beast or the, the serpent is also red, by the way. If that interests you, then you should try workbook four, the creation gospel, which is the scarlet harlot and the crimson thread. We trace that all the way from Genesis to Revelation. But there's a codependency between the beast and the serpent. The beast derives his authority from the serpent. They both know their time is short when the dawn breaks. The exile of Israel is almost over when it's time for the dawn. And at that point, Esau knows that his mountain is about to be judged. Remember what we read right up front? Esau knows his mountain is about to be judged by the house of Israel. And so when they know their time is short, obviously there's going to be a lot of shaking and struggling and so forth. That might be the most vicious part of the battle, but you hang on. You stand right there because Jacob's sheep are going to be the faithful ones that stood and they were not moved. They knew the voice of their Messiah. They knew the word of Adonai. But Esau's sheep will finally be identified as the, the products of sorcery. They are the, the disrespecters of heavenly boundaries of authority. And this is why with the judges, they teach us boundaries of authority. Uh, somebody said, less, talking last night about the Torah portion with some folks, and uh, something they read said, 
you know what? Human judges are fallible. They can be wrong sometimes. But the idea in the Torah is that, um, because remember, there's a, a sacrifice for leaders, judges that lead people astray by accident. They thought they were doing the right thing, and they they actually taught people to do the wrong thing. So there's a sacrifice. There's an acknowledgement that human beings are fallible. They're going to make some mistakes. But because these judges are appointed because of their expertise, because of their character, because of their righteousness, because of their wisdom and their understanding and their, their experience in the word, yeah, they're going to make some mistakes, but they say it's better to make one mistake under the authority of a good judge than to throw off your judges and make tons of mistakes. Because of their wisdom, there are tons of mistakes we won't make. As human beings, we tend to focus on the one mistake a human being does make. And that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, why was that sacrifice included? There's an acknowledgement. They're going to make some mistakes. Follow them anyway. Follow them anyway. Um, And, um, you know, unless you know you're dealing with a wicked judge that just repeatedly defies the authority of the word, it, it might not feel good, might not feel right, because we, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I know I'm right. You might be, but see, you probably thought you were right 10 years ago, and it turned out you were wrong about something. Well, you might be 100% sure you're right about something today, and everybody's telling you, no, 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 that's not the right way, but I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I'm going to hang on. I know I'm right. And then five years from now, if we ask you, like, you're not going to be that sure you were right. And, and this is how judges help us. In those instances where we're convinced we're right, but wisdom is telling us, no, that's not right. And if you want to be in a community, you can't insist on your rightness in that respect. Um, It's not standing up to the word. Um, It's a way of, of pulling a community together where there's going to be at least once in every life if not multiple times, where we think we're right and the whole world is wrong. And that that kind of is like a little safeguard for those particular times. And this is why it's important that as created creatures, that we maintain our boundaries. And, you know, as these principalities and powers, they have boundaries. It's important that we do too, that we maintain not just our boundaries, but our authority within those boundaries, that we exercise our authority within those boundaries. Um, so we don't want to violate someone else's appointed place or time, but we don't want someone else messing with our appointed place and time. So that's why we're looking at this. Are we going to know if somebody is is wrongfully transgressing into our realm or have we come close to wrongfully transgressing into someone else's realm? Uh, because there will be lying signs and wonders at the time of the footsteps. And we want, if we see false fire, if we see false miracles and wonders, they might actually be a miracle or a wonder, but they're deceiving, they're sorcery. We want to call that out very quickly. And we can do it. We can prepare for that. Um, Let's just review for a minute here. angelic principles. I'm going to pull a slide up here for you. So if you want to copy this down, you can. This is by no means a full list 
I'm just, I'm not that much into angelology, but if we're going to do this study, we're going to have to know a little bit about how angels work. And so I think this is probably pretty concise. So if you want to copy this down or, or screenshot it or whatever you want to do with it, feel free. Um, so we just got a few bullet points here, things to know about angels. And then over the next week or two, we'll try to unpack some examples of how this works. Um, First of all, uh, the most common name for an angel is going to be a malak, malak or malakim in, in the plural. Um, they are messengers, typically, and they are sent with a specific mission. And I compare it to a deputy serving a warrant. Uh, but because they are so single minded on these tasks, they have a single realm of authority, a single task to do. Scripture will reflect, reflect that. If you go back and you research the interactions between angels and human beings, it's very deliver the message. Here's the message over and out. They don't tie up the line telling stories. This is what it is. Any questions? See you later, Tater. So they're, they're not going to have unnecessary dialogue. It doesn't mean they're rude. They can appear, appear to be rude sometimes, uh, but they're not. They're just doing what they're wired to do. Um, it doesn't mean that they won't greet you, you know, that they won't acknowledge who you are. They will, but um, they will deliver the message and be gone. You can see, by the way, people ask an angel's name in scripture that they understood if they could know the angel's name, they would have a better at a better handle on what they came there to do or what their power was. And so typically an angel's name is going to reflect some divine attribute that's going to enable him to complete his task. Like Gabriel, he's the strength of El. Um, and so if, if we're seeing these angels kind of like deputies, they get their, their decree, they get their message from the throne. And then what do they need to execute this mission? Well, Gabriel, he, in his missions, they will require, require strength. So that's his name, the strength of El. Um, Michael reflects the uniqueness and the oneness and the aloneness of God as the creator, who is like El, nobody. He's incomparable. So in a question of authority, you don't necessarily need the strength of El, but you do need his authority, Michael. So you can see why Gabriel needed Michael to help him break through the Prince of Persia's resistance. Uh, additionally, often they will, sometimes they just appear like human beings, but then it's like when the human being's eyes are open a little bit spiritually, all of a sudden they can perceive a lot of divine glory and honor. Why would they see something like that? Well, it's almost like a badge. A sheriff gives the deputy a badge and he says, okay, you're doing this in my name. Go do what you do in my name. So I'm giving you this badge of honor that people will respect as if it were me. And so some of the divine glory of the Holy One is placed upon this angel. Some of his hood, some of his honor is placed upon this angel to execute the mission. And so that, that extra glory and honor that they're carrying 
it, in a way, it reflects his delegated authority. Uh, but they don't want to be worshipped. If you see that, if all of a sudden you see this intense light from this being, it doesn't mean you worship the being. It's telling you how impossible it would be to look at the light of the one who put that light on that angel. So you never worship the angel. That light is just like his badge. You can look at that light and say, oh, my goodness, this came from the throne. That's a sign of his authority and his obedience to that authority. But we have to be careful because, remember, the deceiver can also appear as an angel of light, and that is not his badge. <laughs> um, or maybe it is. I don't know. We, we could probably debate that because if Esau's angel had to do what he did with Jacob in order to release the legitimate blessing in the same breath, he is a, he is a deceiver. He is an adversary. He is a Satan. But on the other side, because remember, Satan, there's a big S Satan, but there's also a small S Satan, which is just means an adversary, somebody who's who's in your way. It doesn't have to be of a particular entity. It can be the nature of that being. Even a human being can be a Satan, small s, if they're an adversary. Like, um, well, we won't get into synagogue of Satan. That goes in places that, that people typically don't have enough background to understand. Uh, but it typically means uh, somebody who is misapplying the word, someone who's misapplying the word. And so uh, this deceiver can entice you to misapply the word, to find out what's in your heart, to test you. Jacob was being tested. What was in his heart? Faithfulness. He just stood firm and said, bless me. Uh, Angels are created beings, and some are appointed to nations, to domains. Some are appointed to population centers or individual human beings. And when later, next week or the next, when we go over Daniel, um, we'll see how the mission of Gabriel met resistance from the Prince of Persia and how that can to us seem like it takes a little more time. When that happens. But here's why we're doing this, right? Um, we want to make sure that we don't fall prey to the deception of the beast. Even though the beast is given authority to deceive, we don't want to be among those who are deceived because there's no reason to be deceived. If you know the word, um, you just shouldn't be deceived. It, it, you know, your truth should begin with it is written, not I think I feel I want. If your truth begins with I think I feel I want, and I get so sick of hearing, well, this is just my truth. Well, of course it's yours, but it's not the holy ones, and it won't resurrect you from the dead. You'll die in your truth. But it is written is the truth. His word is truth. And if we rely on our truth, we can be deceived. If we rely on his truth, I don't think there's any danger of being deceived. Uh, it says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who are in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. 
he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth and the presence of people. And he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. Don't let a sign or a wonder deceive you. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Right? So uh, we have to be careful because we can be deceived. Uh, intentional rebellion. Sometimes we're just immature. We're ignorant. We don't know what we don't know. That's different. But if we're intentionally rebellious, then eventually he will give you what you want, which is to perceive that which looks to be real, but yet it isn't. Because um, these angels or these Elohim, small e, they do have assigned authority. It just says authority was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. It's given to him. He can do it. He can do it. The angel could fight with Jacob all night. He can do it. The only question is, how do we react to this authority to the, that they're exercising? Because we're, we're being warned up front. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. Principalities and powers in high places. Esau was just the, the physical person. But Jacob went to the source. He went to the real adversary. And when he dealt with the real adversary from the high place, then when he met Esau face to face, it just like it deflated Esau and everything he meant to do on that journey. I'm sure he meant to kill Jacob when he started out the journey. I'm sure he meant to kill Jacob because he'd already said he was going to. But sometime in the night when Jacob prevails over this high place, it all goes out of Esau. And he's like, my brother. Good to see you again. And uh, he's perfectly willing to take the natural blessings and to let Jacob have the, the long term. Uh, but don't forget these, these beings, they are mighty in power. They are very powerful in spiritual realms. But that power is allotted to them only to carry out their assigned tasks. They don't want to be worshipped, but this is where we get things like idolatry, sorcery, divination, astrology, necromancy, and other dark arts that will cross those boundaries. And they will seek out these principalities and powers as a source to tap into rather than tap into the Holy One who will not give them everything they want. See, if you follow him, he says, the, the cost of following me is you'll do my will. But if you want to seek after these principalities and powers, it's so you don't have to do his will. And so they will do your will that you want to tap in. See, it's so funny, like demons tapping into human beings 
to exercise their will. But in the same way, there are human beings who cross that boundary who think they can manipulate these principalities and powers to do their will. And so they're both wrong. You cannot cross realms without a divine message, mission, authorization, and so forth. Uh, So when a human being dies, they're assigned to a different realm. They're They're in a realm of death. However, a believer, a righteous person, is assigned a place where it really is a continuation of life. The soul continues to exist and there's a consciousness of the soul and there's a separation between the two. Uh, The understanding is the righteous soul goes to the Garden of Eden, given a white robe, just like it says in Revelation, and they function there in that white robe. I call it a space suit because they need something. They They need to look like they're taking up some sort of space. They need form to function there until their resurrected body is restored to that soul. The the wicked, the lukewarm, there's kind of a different holding place. There's another boundary there that we see that in the parable with the rich man and Lazarus. But there are people who try to cross this boundary. They might miss, you know, a mom, a dad, a child so much that they're willing to go to a necromancer and have that necromancer contact this deceased loved one. And often it will appear that they have done that. Something will appear that will look like the relative or the loved one. It will sound like them. It will even know things the deceased would know. And we don't know exactly how that works. We don't need to. All we need to know is that it is an encroachment into the realm of death. That is not our realm. Yet, we will be assigned somewhere upon death, but we're not there yet. Yeshua is the only one who earned resurrection for human beings. Only Yeshua earned that right to resurrect a human being. If we were to be given a mission of resurrecting another human being, it would have to be under divine authority. We would need to know that was what the Father wanted us to do. And under what authority? In the name of Yeshua. We we invoke that name, that authority, because we have no authority to resurrect from the dead apart from him. That's necromancy. And it goes back to giving breath to the image of the beast. That's what a sorcerer, a necromancer is trying to do. They're trying to give breath to that which is dead. And it will appear, if you want to see it, it will look like it's happening. But if you understand, that is an illusion. That is a sorcery. And this person does not have the authority to cross that boundary and and try to pull up a dead soul. Um, All they're going to be able to do, all a necromancer is going to be able to do is call forth a spirit that has some appearance of the deceased, right? Only in Yeshua's authority do you call forth a resurrected person to live again. Um, And so that was kind of a long lesson, but I wanted us to have a good foundation so we can really fly next week um, as we get into these principalities and powers and high places and how they work. But more importantly, before we, you know, 
really get into that, we need to acknowledge that there will be people out there who can try to pass themselves off as the prophets, like in the Torah portion this week, uh, false prophet, it's sorcery. Even though it might look like that's really a sign, that's really a wonder, it goes back to what do you want to see? Do you want to be rebellious? Do you want rebellion to be true? Do you want that to be your truth? If so, then it's going to look like he was resurrected. It's going to look like he called down fire. It's going to look like Pharaoh's magicians made serpents. If that's what you want to see, that's what you'll see. But it's, you're, you're being a fool. If you think there's any other way in, any other way in is a thief and a robber. If you're not going through the door of Yeshua's authority, you're a thief and a robber. You're just like the robber. The way the angel appeared as a shepherd robber to Jacob. It's a sorcery. There's no sheep there. Those are Esau's. Really, this is all a preparation for us to remember why we were encamped the way that we were encamped in the wilderness. Twelve tribes. Uh, sections of three tribes on each side of the four directions of the four winds. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Out there in the wilderness is the prototype. Because remember, you've got the Mishkan, you've got the tabernacle there in the middle. You've got the Levites going around like a little horseshoe. And then in front of the Mishkan, you've got the priesthood. You've got Moses, Aaron, and their sons. And yeah, they're the Levitical priesthood and the Levites. But who's encamped around them? Who comes into direct contact with the world? The 12 tribes of Israel. They come into contact with the 12, with the, with the four winds. See how they're encamped there with their four banners? They face the four winds. They face the nations of the earth. And as they are ministered to by priests and Levites. So the 12 tribes are priests and Levites to the world itself. And see, that encampment in the wilderness was so they could practice judging, just like it says in Shoftim in our Torah portion this week. They were to practice being good judges, righteous judges. So when the nations brought the hard cases up to them, brought them up to the gates of Jerusalem, when they were settled in their territory, when they receive their inheritance, that there would be peace on earth. Because you see, as long as these principalities and powers are struggling and fighting against one another, there's no peace. What a responsibility. You say, oh, I don't have any purpose. You know, I'm just a teeny tiny little part of the whole. No, you're huge. Your obedience is huge. Because just imagine what peace you can bring with the rule and the reign of King Messiah when you were encamped and your spot in obedience, looking into the light of the word, looking into the instruction of the Torah. So that if somebody comes to you where you are right now, you're out in the wilderness of the peoples right now. So when people come up to you and they say, I'm having a problem here. Can you help me judge this? Can you help me think through this? You can say, yes, let's go to the word. Let's go straight to the word. What does the word say about this? And you can teach them. You can do exactly what Isaiah said you would do, which he described more of this great glory of doing it from Jerusalem. But it starts right here in the nations of our exile. 
We're in the wilderness of the peoples. He's a little sanctuary among us. And so we have to protect that little sanctuary. We have to be able to practice judging. You know, the dumbest thing I ever hear is judge not that you be not judged. Well, that's a completely different issue. That's being a busybody. But when people come to you for judgment, when they need advice, when they need you to help them look into the word and get clarity, what is sin? What is not sin? How do I do this? How do I apply this commandment? How do I make light out of this commandment in my life? That's your job. You're a judge. You're an Elohim, small E, not big E. You're not the creator. You are the created. But see, when Israel encamps in the wilderness there, their job was to bring peace to the earth. And they were being prepared so that when they were put in Jerusalem, that the nations could go up and receive righteous judgment. And all these principalities and powers could be brought down. No longer needed. Just irrelevant at that point. I don't know if they'll have other assignments. I'm sure they will. But in terms of the chaos that they're causing right now, the things that we're struggling against right now, that's going to be shaken. It's going to be brought down. But he's not going to bring them down until he's ready to raise us up. So I hope that's an encouragement. It's also a, a big task. You know, if we think about that, that's a big obligation. Are you ready? Are you ready to judge the nations with King Messiah? If King Messiah sends you on a mission, you know, I think that's the beauty. If he scattered us out here among the nations, and so we know the language, we know the culture, we know the geography, we know the history, we know the things about the nations we need to know in order to be good judges. And so that that thing that has felt so awful, I'm out here in exile among the nations, it's so hard to keep the tour, it feels like everything is swimming upstream. Well, those things that seem like they were such obstacles, and they are such, ob such obstacles, those very obstacles were, will turn out to make us good judges. because we will know the people we're judging. And so not only will we have righteous judgment from the word, we will be able to apply it uniquely to particular nations because not every nation is like the other. And so you practice, you get ready, you prepare to rise up, you practice being a good judge and nobody sits on the bench if they don't know the law. I, I think that would be, which you don't want to mess with people too much when they're first kind of coming to the idea that the Torah really is still truth. It wasn't left in the dust 2,000 years ago. Instead, it rose up from the dust 2,000 years ago. And just tell them, you know, if if you were going to court, if you were in trouble and somebody brought you to the court, would you want to stand before a judge who didn't know the law? Of course you wouldn't. Nobody would. Unless you liked breaking the law, then you would probably want a judge that didn't know the law. But we're not going to stand before a judge who doesn't know the Torah. And should he choose us to be one of his judges or, or send us on a mission? If he sends us out of Jerusalem with the word and the Torah, then who, who are we going to go teach? Who are we going to go judge? Who are we going to instruct if we don't know what's in the Torah? So we have to be good judges. 
we're not, we're, he's not going to put us on the bench because we win a popularity contest or a beauty contest, you know, or he looks into our bank account and sees how much money we have in the bank account. None of that matters. All measures are equal. He says, are you competent to judge my word? And can I trust you with my people? Because a shepherd must be trusted with the people. And that's what a judge's job is to do. Heal the nations by applying the Torah. The word is healing. He sends his word and heals them. So if he sends you forth with his word as a judge on a mission, then your job is going to be to take his word and heal the nations. Uh, but there is discussion of angels and their roles as they interact with human beings. And so to that extent, it's helpful to know how angels do interact. And if we know how they interact and we know how they function and we know what their function is, then I think as we get to the book of Revelation and we're warned that there will be all kinds of lying signs and wonders, uh, that there, there might be people who appear to us as angels of light. If we are skilled in the word, if we're educated in the word, if we have the fundamentals of the word, then I don't see any reason why we should be deceived by some entity posing as an angel of light. And so to that extent, we want to take a look and and kind of wrap up last week's lesson on principalities and powers, because if we don't understand them, then we are a little bit lost in the book of Revelation when it, you know, and then also when Yeshua talks about how principalities and powers will be shaken. What is he talking about? And I think the more we study it and understand the function of these principalities and powers, the more more it really checks us in terms of, you know, you might have grown up in a tradition where you were told to take authority over this thing and that thing, and you cast out demons left and right, and everything was Satan, you know, you know, Satan's really fighting me today when maybe not. (laughs) Maybe you're just living in a fallen world. Uh, Maybe that has more to do. And it just, it makes you feel better to put a name on it and say, this is the person that's after me today when, you know, really, we just have to accept sometimes this is what death is like. This is what entropy is like. This is what it's like to wait for King Messiah to return. And so we have to find out more about how these angels function. Um, as opposed to, say, demons, and I certainly don't want to get into a demon study anytime soon. Watch, that's what will happen. But uh, understanding how angels work maybe can help us in not just believing that every angelic majesty is somehow a demon that's opposed to you. And that way you won't, you won't waste a lot of unnecessary breath taking dominion over things that you can't take the dominion from them. It's assigned to them. It's when you're out of your boundaries that you run into trouble, and it's when they're out of their boundaries that they'll run into trouble. That's when you're more likely to run into something that's from a different realm that that we're just we're not going to get into. But sometimes you're going to face an adversary who is actually appointed by heaven, the Holy One Himself. Put that angelic majesty in its place, and you might be perceiving it as an adversary, as as some sort of Satan with a small s, but on the other hand, what if that particular angelic prince, majesty, whatever as scripture calls it, what if there's their territory that you happen to be in? And it may be that you're praying, and it might be that help is on the way, but it might be that that help is going to take a little bit longer than you think because there's there's adjustments made. Scripture is full of information about levels of authority. And so 
for your, you know, uh, a message from heaven might be crossing boundaries of authority, especially reaching us and the nations to which we're scattered. That's a big issue because, as we'll see, the the nations have been allotted these princes and principalities. That was allotted to them. The land of Israel and the people of Israel were designed to really be one thing. And this is why obedience is going to be so important for Israel, because it's land. It's there's a connection there to the land, and the Holy One Himself looks over that land personally. He is personally interested. That is His domain. He takes that personal authority for Himself. You know, in fact, it's it's understood that you know the Garden of Eden is where the palace of of King Messiah is. It's called the Bird's Nest, and we know the Garden of Eden it, it hovers just above the land of Israel. And so that special place, the boundaries, what's within those boundaries is very special. And that will help us to understand how out in the nations where we've been scattered, there are princes and principalities out there that we're having to deal with, just like Daniel in the book of Daniel, where he's praying. It seems like the answer is taking so long to come. Well, there is a prince over Persia where he's living. And so some things have to to take place in heavenly realms in order for that message to get through. So sometimes it's not a, a demon is chasing you. It's just that there's things happening in realms that we cannot see. And so we need to be very careful and guard our tongues, be very circumspect uh, when we refer to the devil and the adversary and who's chasing you today. There might be a very different reality that seems less real to us because we can't see it with the physical eye. But if we read it in the word, then we can understand it with a spiritual eye. We can exercise spiritual understanding. So that's what we're going to do. Last week in part one, we looked at how angels function, kind of a simple look, how they function in their tasks, uh, some bullet points. You know, when you think about angels, those were some things to think about. And if you're just tuning in for the first time this week, then you would want to back up a week and and probably watch part one first, because it's like angels 101. But in this lesson, we want to extend that a little bit. Now that we understand the nature of angels as created beings, we do want to consider how these powers and principalities factor into not just their own tasks, but perhaps how, as we're working through our tasks, how we need to factor that in, especially in the nations where we've been scattered. We want to take a look, how is Israel not like the other nations? Well, we're under the Holy One's personal supervision, but yet because of rebellion, we were scattered out in the nations. And so now there's overlap. The Holy One has a personal interest in us, Nevertheless, because of rebellion, because of sin, we're out here in the nations. The good news is he's going to gather us. He's going to bring us back. We'll be one people in one land. And that undiluted, pure supervision that he wanted from the beginning in the garden can take place. It also helped us understand how horrible it was when Israel, once they crossed into the land, they began to incorporate the gods of the other nations into their worship in this particular holy land. There's there's a boundary there. And even though it's a horrible thing for the nations to worship idols, it's horrible, 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 abominable for Israel to go out and take those gods 
of the other nations, which are not gods at all. They're just Elohim with a small e. They're judges, they're princes, they're principalities. They have assigned powers by the Holy One. They have assigned tasks. It doesn't mean you worship them. But see, if you're rebellious, you'll try to tap into their power because you don't want to pray to the Holy One, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Instead, we want the God to grant us all our wishes, like a genie in a bottle. And so they incorporate these gods and basically, you know, rub the lamp and just give me what I want. I'm not that concerned about what you want. Uh, I'm only concerned about what you want, only to the extent that you'll give me what I want back. And so their sacrifices were more like bribes and appeasement, which is not a good thing. Uh, The relationship between Israel and Adonai was not that way. So to pollute the land with these gods of the other nations, when he's saying, no, this is where I personally supervise, why in the world would you take another entity out of its principality and introduce it into mine? It's not even like, you know, nation borrowing idols from other nations. It's like, how in the world would you go out into another nation, take its assigned prince, and try to pull it in to the land of Israel, which is like the snake going into the garden? Why in the world would you penetrate into that boundary and try to exercise your own will when there's only one in that place? There's only space for one in that place. But if if we can understand that basic principle, and it, it really does help us understand why idolatry is so much worse when it's committed in the land of Israel, because you're not just messing with any old principality and power, you're messing with the, the personal space, the allotted space of the Holy One. He says, this is, you know, personal supervision. This is my mountain. This is my place. This is my people. So, Knowing how to interact with those powers and principalities out here among the nations, as the footsteps of Messiah draw nearer, then we need to really understand how there has to be a preparation made for the reign of King Messiah. Because see, all these powers and principalities that are out there that have been appointed by the Holy One, uh, just like the Prince of Persia, he was appointed, he was doing his task. We'll take a look at that. But Remember what we said last week about angels. They're very single-minded. They kind of do one thing at a time. And so in order for the, you know, their understanding of their job to be overridden by a higher order, remember it took uh, Michael to come help Gabriel because of the territorial thing. The Prince of Persia did have an authority and he had to be made to understand to step aside in this instance because Daniel was in his principality. He was in his territory. And this is where, you know, prayer is so important for us when we are among the nations because we might need help. And, you know, understanding that you're in another angelic majesties, you're in another authority boundary. And so, yes, you personally belong to the Holy One, but because of rebellion, now this situation has to be managed. And that's why it's going to be so impressive thank you for exploring the torah portion with us for more information on this ministry go to thecreationgospel.com you can find links there for our newsletter 
books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.